The good thing with real estate, it's almost the same across the world. So if you wanted to go invest and buy a property in another country, there's just two things you have to look into, really, the taxes and the laws. In the US, you may not be so much trust all the time. It may be just like process. What's the process? You don't even need to know sometimes a, a title company or a lawyer. You just, you know, they're going to do it. You know, they're going to get it done and it's done. In Uganda, it's more about who you know and the trust is the process. You know, you can't change someone's DNA, right? So the way I operate is more of a gut feeling and I, I look at trends. I feel like I have enough experience where I can say, okay, this is coming down the pipe. This is what's happening. This is the next wave. The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. What is up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Investor Creator. Appreciate you being with us today. So wanted to share something with you really quick before we get started with Nathan's interview, which was really, really amazing. I know you're going to love that. But I wanted to sh share something with you and really caution you on something that I see in this industry. So it's really, really common for both investors and realtors, for that matter, to really coast the fourth quarter. And I see that as being a colossal mistake. And here's why. A lot of people feel, okay, the fourth quarter, most everybody's done their transactions this year already. And really, I see this certainly between Thanksgiving and New Year's, right? So everybody just kind of takes off. And what I want to submit to you is that is going to be a big, big mistake come first of the year. So I'm actually gearing up our marketing right now because I want to create contracts that close right after first of the year so that we have a really, really strong first quarter of next year. And for whatever reason, people don't really think about that. I think people kind of want to rest on their laurels that, hey, we've had a great year. And look, I'm not the person to say, don't take a break and, and don't celebrate the wins. But at the same time, we've got to get to work for next year. So just kind of keep that in mind. I do want to take a moment and introduce you to my friend, Nathan Amaral. So Nathan is an investor that has really become an international investor and really wasn't starting off like hoping to do that. And really from this interview, I thought it was really, really interesting because very rarely do I have someone that has really an international scope or perspective when it comes to the real estate business. And so really talking about the real estate business in terms of what do cap rates look like in other countries and what are the, the political processes look like in other countries and how does that impact transactions and title and law and taxes and all of these things. But I really left this interview thinking, you know, maybe not only is the best opportunity not in our hometown and maybe not even in our home state, it may not be in our home country. And I really think about with AI and the technology coming the next 20 or 30 years and with COVID really making remote transactions become normal, I wonder what real estate really looks like for a traditional investor like us that's really a small business. Is the typical investor in 30 or 40 years, do they have more of an international vantage point? 
And I think maybe the answer is yes. You know, after this interview, I, I was really thinking about this for a couple of days. And, and it's something that I, I really want to submit to you as being something that we really want to be on the forefront of thought in this industry. If we're not, then we're, we're going to get left behind because technology is increasing at a rate that has never been seen before. And if we have an international vantage point, then we're going to, to certainly see more opportunities than if we are just looking, hey, I want in this zip code only. So, you know, in my company, we buy in multiple states. And I really think about now, like, what does it look like to go to a different market in terms of just a new country? You know, how do we bridge that gap between the knowledge that we need and the knowledge that we have? And I think that Nathan does a really, really good job of kind of beginning to bridge that gap for us. So I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. I really enjoyed interviewing Nathan, and we had a lot of fun both uh, on this call and after the call. And so, Nathan, I appreciate you being on. So without further delay, here's Nathan. Nathan, welcome to Investor Creator. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you. So first things first, kind of tell me about what you're seeing in the market and what are you learning about the market right now? Sure. Well, my experience and and my team in the the U.S. market has been a big influx of purchases going on. We deal with also uh, short-term rentals, but a huge amount of purchases happening in the single-family space as well as land. We're seeing a lot of people purchase land right now who maybe wouldn't have considered buying land before. Where they're saying, you know, hey, I want to buy land because I want to get out of the city. That's something we've been finding a big trend for. Interesting enough, I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but there's these, they're called like mud races and they take these like big trucks that are customized and they drive them through the mud. <laughs> like these big, like, I don't know. Have you seen those? Do you have those? I haven't, but it sounds like fun. Oh, it, it's, it's like so common in like Alabama and Georgia and stuff. So anyway, we've been having a rush of people buying these big lots and acres for that, you know, that kind of events and stuff. And then, you know, from what we're seeing, I, I mean, I think we're all anticipating and waiting for the market correction. So whether, you know, things are just going to start going in at a discount, are we going to see a market correction? I think we're, everybody's anticipating that. But I'll tell you what, I was like I was sharing, I've uh, started liquidating a bunch of stuff in, uh, in a few different states and everything has been selling for above market value. Above mar- Everything's above market value right now, which is just something to enjoy. Uh, for a period of time. I don't think that's going to last too much longer, but I think the opportunity uh, is to get in a cash position right now and then take the funds and then invest when uh, the market corrects corrects itself. Yeah. So let's talk about that. And I'm doing the same thing like we talked about offline quite a bit of going retail where historically, I really liked underfinancing. I still really love underfinancing. But are you anticipating... When we say correction, I mean, I think in my county in Middle Tennessee, the, the, the days on market right now is six. And so if we even went to 90 days on market, it would feel like a major correction. And people are just so drunk on this ease of the market, this red hot seller's market. But are you seeing any type of an 09 scenario? Or do you feel like, hey, this may be a price correction of 10%? Like, what does your gut tell you? Because you've been in this a long time. Yeah, I've been doing this a while. And I, I lived through that correction. I was a mortgage broker slash investor during that time. So I fed in to the that mortgage crisis. I was a, a very active broker at the time. And, uh, and at the same time, I was you know doing starting a little bit of my real estate business. So I don't think we're going to go back to that. I really don't. I just think this is a small correction where it's going to dip down for a bit. But I don't see the chaotic cleanup. For example, the actions that Chase and Wells Fargo just took recently, maybe two or three months ago, where they just said, hey, we're not, we're not lending on any HELOCs. We're pulling back, right? So that's a good indicator, in my opinion, to say, look, some of the biggest US banks just pulled back on allowing HELOCs. 
they're not going to lend on, you know, just rent the eight, the, the home as the ATM. We do have this still low interest rates for people coming into the market and buying. I don't see it where we're going to go through this huge crisis. I just think there's just going to be a change in you know price, obviously, and the market's going to tick up a little bit higher for the next you know maybe eight, eight to ten years. We'll have a little dip, and then we'll just continue to go up. That's the one yeah, I, and I tend to agree. I don't see anything catastrophic either. So I really want to get into the international investing because I think you're one of the few guests that I have that have like that type of network and platform. But first, kind of tell us like what took you from mortgage broker with a small real estate investing business to going international? Yeah, well, I'll try to sum up like 12 years and less than 12 minutes. Yeah, but, right. um, <laughs> but basically, the mortgage business was my ex-father-in-law kind of said, hey, you want to marry my daughter? You got to read this book. And that book was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. <laughs> and uh, What and a great that, father. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was a great ex-father-in-law. Yeah, he really was. And unfortunately, like when he first handed it to me, I didn't read the book. I went back, I gave it to him like a few days later. He's like, okay, what's in chapter six? And I didn't read it. And he's like, you really want to marry my daughter? You better read this book. So I did, took a lot of notes. And I was that's where the, the fire was ignited. And I started going to... He started bringing me to seminars. From I went to my first Brian Tracy seminar with him and, and uh, Tom Hopkins and a whole bunch of other real estate and mortgage. He got me into the mortgage business as well. And what clicked for me was when I was doing mortgages and I'd see these investors walking away, I'll never forget the guy who walked away with 90K at closing. And this guy was, he was an investor. And I said, Hey man, how are you walking away with 90K? He's like, Oh, I'm an investor on the deal. And, and that, you know, I told my ex-father-in-law that, and you know, we had this, you know, he's like, yeah, you should try this, do that. So I eventually started making more money in real estate than I was as a mortgage broker. We had the, you know, that price, the loan mortgage crisis there that happened and everything tightened up. So I just went full time into real estate and I've been doing real estate ever since. And at first, this concept, because I was doing everything locally in Massachusetts, I was knocking on doors and, you know, everything was local face to face, you know, writing contracts at the local cafe. And when I moved to California and then I moved to North Carolina, it was really when I moved to North Carolina, I did my first deal and it was four hours away. So I did my first, I call it remote deal. Right. And I never walked into the property. That was big for me at the time. I was really nervous, never walked, physically walked in. And I did that one. And then I did another one. And then I did a state away, two states away, three states away. And then finally, I guess I got a little bold. I was like, oh, let me do this from a whole nother country. <laughs> so... In 2013, I decided to move out of the US. Um, my parents immigrated from Portugal to the United States many years ago. I was born in Massachusetts. But in 2013, I decided to move to Uganda to go meet my pen pal of so many years ago. And I met my pen pal face-to-face on a two-week trip, a little excursion in Uganda. Anyway, left there, engaged, 30 days later, got married, and moved to Uganda. So it was... Uh, you know, and, and uh, I started my life there, sold everything I had in the US and moved to Uganda. And it was while I was in Uganda, I took like a six month sabbatical. And I said, well, can, I can do this from here because I did it from the US. I did it from within. Let me see what I can do. So I started doing it from Uganda and I could just continue my real estate business while living there. I also started buying locally. And I'll tell you what, Brad, the biggest thing I learned during that time is how to deal with cultures, right? So how people do things, the operational process. The good thing with real estate is you could pretty much... It's almost the same in across the world. So if you wanted to go invest and buy a property in another country, there's just two things you have to look into, really, is the taxes and the laws. So once you understand those two primary factors, again, real estate is real estate. So I started picking up some land and we started doing short-term rentals in Uganda. 
and started having a family. Well, as I'm having a family and you know, you know, multiple children, I said, well, you know, how am I going to reunite with my parents? So what I ended up doing was we came back to the island, which is where I am right now. I'm in these little nine islands of uh, off the coast of Portugal called uh, the Islands of the Azores, and um, we basically said, hey, let's meet. It's in the middle of both of us, the U.S. and Uganda. So let's meet back there. So we started, you know, reuniting in 2015, 17, 19, and now we are COVID. That's where I'm at right now. While I was here during this time, picked up some short-term rentals and just picked up a, a bunch of apartments and leased it out on a long-term lease for a senior care project because I, I saw senior care is in demand and it's it's going up. I don't know if... I'm sure maybe your audience might know this. I know you guys probably talked about this in previous episodes, but the senior care market, about 10,000 people are touching, crossing the line of 65 years of age and older in the United States alone. Uh, here, I knew there was a demand because there was already about a waiting list of 500 people waiting to get into a nursing home and wow. they didn't have anywhere to go. Yeah. So I saw immediate demand. So actually, when I first was investing here, I was thinking about doing a hotel. And then as I started seeing the need, you know, we just changed it to a senior care project. So in summary, that's how I got here, international investing. But I invest in three different countries. And I would say, hey, hey, there was a lot of mistakes along the way. But those are the two main factors is know the laws know the tax codes because you can really get taken for a ride. And honestly, I, I feel like this last deal that I just did was... <laughs> Brad, it wasn't the hard... It wasn't my biggest deal of my career, but it was the hardest deal of my career. And it was because of the taxes and the culture, the bureaucracy and the processes. It was like, that was the hardest part. Yeah, that, That's really that's interesting. So yeah. To jump in there, man, yeah. you know, we invest in multiple states and the differences between states are, are not small sometimes. So like you have mortgage states and deed of trust and you have some right. that are attorney states and some allow title companies. That and then is, yeah. you have Louisiana that's under like this Napoleonic, whatever. So true. Yeah. So you have like all these kind of nuances. And then I, I have an apprentice that's in Hawaii and I didn't realize this, but you know, I didn't realize the distrust between native Hawaiians and non-natives. And so like you have these nuances even within the U.S. And so, so true. take me through the first deal in you. It was Uganda? Uganda, okay. yeah. So I have an apprentice, Braden, that is in South Africa. And he's buying U.S. Okay. real estate from South Africa. So, I mean, he's okay. doing well. And so shout out to Braden and Derek and Lee. But it's really an amazing thing. So I understand someone going from South Africa to buy U.S. real estate because it seems like the processes and the laws would be a little bit more streamlined. But I have uh, Tony here in my office that does a whole lot of mission work in um, Kenya. And he in talks Kenya. about how like, hey, like you have to have beer money wherever you go, whether you drink beer or not, because like that, those are the payoffs. Like, hey, man, let me buy you yeah, a beer yeah. at, the, at the, yeah. the bus stop. Right, so, right. Like, tell me about that first deal and what did you have to learn? And what was there anything that surprised you about that process? Well, interesting enough, you you make some good points and references to Kenya. Um, interesting enough, I actually didn't buy my first deal the first year I was in Uganda. I actually just I didn't work that much. I kind of soaked in with the culture, got familiar with the native, like the locals, and really just lived, you know, and enjoyed myself while I was there for that first year. And interesting enough, I actually enjoy that process. When I compare the United States and Portugal and Uganda, Uganda it tends to be at the top of my list because I like this whole beer mentality and I don't use beer as the motivator. I just use money as a motivator because here, in, for example, here in Portugal, you can't give anyone an envelope 
to help you get expedite a service. Like if I wanted a paper to be, you know, to get from one end of the city to the other, it just like they would, people would ask you questions like, well, it's only going to take you 15 minutes to bring it there. Like they would ask you to go do it rather than, no, I'll pay you to go do it. Oh, well, maybe I can do it next week, right? In Uganda, it's like, hey, I need somebody to bring this document down to the city hall or to get this stamped by, and I need it like right now. No problem, phone call, someone, you pay them, boom, they, they take it right away. And I feel like that's a, a very, and that's all cultural based. It's just very different. I feel like in Uganda and, and go leading into my first deal there, it's all about like, you know, who you know and building trust, getting to know the, the locals. Unfortunately, there is no like MLS, for example, in Uganda. They use things like Craigslist or in, in Uganda, it's called OLX. And the online marketplace for real estate is just starting to burst through the seams. It's really just picking up Facebook Marketplace and stuff like that. Really, everything is like local. So you're really getting in there. You're talking to the owners. You're you know, you're know, on site and you're getting familiar with the process. For us, what we ended up doing... My wife had never purchased property before. So what I ended up doing was I found a developer who was already buying lots, developing them and selling lots off or selling the houses off. So I felt already comfortable that this guy knew what he was doing. He was a referral from my wife's matron, like best uh, best friend's husband. So I immediately said, okay, this is someone I can trust. He knows someone he can trust. He's bought land from him before. It was all relationships and trust, Brad. That's really what it was. It was relationships and trust. In the US, you may not be so much trust all the time. It may be just like process. What's the process? You don't even need to know sometimes a, a, a title company or a lawyer. You just you know they're going to do it. You know they're going to get it done. And it's done. In Uganda, it's more about who you know and the trust is the process. That's, that was my experience. And as we built, we bought more land and we built more short-term rentals. It was about finding someone that we could trust to manage the short-term rentals. And we've been doing that now for over three years. So the trust factor, the experience that they have is, is really important, I think. That makes sense. So let me ask you this. So, you know, we have basic benchmarks in US real estate, like let's say the 1% rule. So basically yeah. for those that don't know, the 1% rule is, you know, if you're buying a house for 100K and it would rent for $1,000 a month, then that's probably going to be a good rental. So like whenever you went outside of the US, were you taking those kinds of benchmarks with you and did they work or is it completely just a like playing chess versus checkers? Like it looks kind of similar, but it's a completely different game. It, I mean, I took it mentally with me like, oh, the 1% rule or in some markets, I do a 2% rule in some markets, even some of my clients do that. However, however, in Uganda, it's a lot different. I'll tell you what, you can actually rent a property, furnish it if you want to do short-term rentals. The market is all over the place. And it's whatever someone's willing to pay for it or someone's willing to rent it for. So the whole evaluation process in Uganda is not there. It's You could have a bank go out and do an evaluation. But if, like, if you had a private evaluator... Eh. I mean, you can literally build a house and put a price tag on it. If you find a buyer for it, and they're willing to pay for it, it's done. And it doesn't mean it's going to match the local area. Rentals, I feel, are way overpriced in Uganda. Like A lot of my friends are sometimes shocked when I say, listen, yeah, in this market, nice neighborhood, you're looking at $4,000 a month, $3,000 a month. Like, what? In Uganda? And I'm like, wow. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. most people don't realize that. But the market is growing so much in Uganda. And Brad, I'll tell you this real quick. I've lived in a few different states, about five different states in the US, lived here in Portugal and in Uganda. And out of all the places I've lived in, Uganda is the fastest growing, Kampala, Uganda. Let me make this clear. Kampala, Uganda, the capital, is the fastest growing place I've ever lived in 
in regards to growth. And I've lived even in Charlotte, North Carolina, who has 40 to 50 people moving there a day. Florida, a thousand people moving there a day. Uganda has the highest construction growth that I've ever seen. It's amazing. There's cranes everywhere, everywhere. And uh, yeah, most people, most people don't realize it most because it's not on the radar. You know, I mean, you say Africa, people think giraffe. I mean, it's not the case at all. But you look at the biggest capital cities, they're sprawling and growing out. The, the lower class is skyrocketing to middle class faster than anything. And, and China has a big impact and influence in that market as well. I think they're doing a great job there, building roads faster than they were in Shenzhen and uh, Beijing. They're doing construction work faster than what they've done in 30 years, what China has done in its own country. They're doing it in 12 years to 15 years in Africa, which is phenomenal. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So here's kind of an odd question, I suppose. This just kind of came to mind. So I have a friend of mine who was former city manager of a a good-sized suburb for about 30 years. And he and I, he was a cigar friend. So we would hang out at the cigar shop uh, fairly often. He became a good friend of mine and, and pretty much a mentor throughout the years. And so... But he would mention to me how often he would get offered bribes from people trying to get things through. And so in this city, he was basically like the mayor. So, you know, you had a mayor, but he was kind of a figurehead. But Roger was city manager and he was a decision-making power. So he was over the police force and he was over the fire department and the education department. He's over everybody. And so when it came to getting something through with zoning or get something through, then Roger was kind of the guy. Are you seeing that happen as kind of a normal way of practice in some of these markets? Because it seems to even be a normal way of practice in the U.S. It's just not talked about. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Brad. I hear this all the time. People say, oh, there's so much corruption over there, over here and all that. But in my opinion, corruption in the U.S. has been labeled as uh, different words like lobbyism, (laughs) right? Being a lobbyist. Right. There's so many different ways. It's just covered up in different ways. But the reality is, I even think of a situation here on the island. It's not just the pass of the envelope, like, hey, here you go. It's, oh, you do this, I do that for you. And I've been in politics in the US. I ran for office and and won an election. But the reality is, what I realized, quickly realized, is the corruption that happens in politics that can make just turn... You know, if that's not the direction you want to serve in life, then you you better get out of it like I did. I would say there's going to be corruption and, hey, scratch my back, I scratch yours. That's global. I don't care where you go. It's global. It reminds me of where in a city in Massachusetts where I grew up in, the mayor himself would take bribes from the State Department. There was guys in the State Department and he would get extra funding. Instead of using the funding on the roads, he was using it for something else. It came out six years later, but it was still being done, right? And I think, it, you know, most people think internationally, they think, oh, it's not in my own backyard, but it's so abroad. It's everywhere. It's yeah. everywhere. It just may be done a little differently. Maybe maybe instead of a, lot, a bank wire, maybe it's done in a bag of cash. <laughs> it's, just, it's just done differently, you know? <laughs> so. That makes sense. All right, Nathan. So yeah. let's say that you're going to your fourth market, okay? So mm-hmm. you're, you're in these markets now. You want to go to your fourth market. What are you yeah. looking for to decide, hey, this is a contender or no, we should stay away from this? That's a great question. I'm actually thinking about a fourth market. And um, I was watching this video on YouTube about this gal that I've been following. She travels the world and she is building a house in Bali. And I was surprised because I'm like, wow, you're going to build a house in Bali? So 
Exploring my next market is probably going to be either building or acquiring then uh, short-term rental. Short-term rental. I can live there and then short-term rental it out. Interesting. Okay, so let's talk about financing because a lot of what I do is creative on the purchase side. So we buy a lot with 0% on the finance or with buying subject to an existing lien. How does international finance work across different markets? And are you seeing banking regulation be like extremely different? I have to assume so. And so how do you navigate that in terms of raising money? Yeah. So, well, in regard, let's I'll t- just from the banking, traditional, conventional stuff first. When I look at Portugal, extremely low rates. You can get a mortgage rate for 0.05, like 0.05. Okay. It's just extremely low. I got a buddy of mine. Yeah, percent. Yeah. <laughs> 5% and we're taking it to decimal 0.05%. Like, yeah, you could you could actually have a mortgage rate of like 0.1. It's crazy. You could have one of I got a buddy of mine who's got 0.08 and it's a 40-year term. It's extremely low. And actually they have properties here where you could buy them off the bank, like basically um, you know, bank REOs, right? So you can buy those. They'll actually give you 100% financing and they'll give you money to fix up the property. Okay. So you can go 100 120%. They'll fix up the property, give you a very low rate as long as you stay in the property and you can't sell it for five years. So there's even those opportunities. Now, be mindful that is this is a socialistic country. So the government and banks are there pushing people to do things. Okay. So it's very opposite. There's hardly any capitalism here doesn't even exist. The entrepreneurial flame doesn't even exist here. It's like, it's blown out by the government. (laughs) So when it comes to Uganda, for example, it's completely opposite. It would shock you. Interest rates are 18%. They just got lowered from 21% on a loan to 18. However, the savings rate in Uganda is 13% and 14%. So most people are thinking, wait a second, I'm not even getting 1% in my savings account. In Uganda, it's 13% savings rate. However, you have very high mortgage rates or lending rates. So that's really the difference. Now, when it comes to raising money in foreign countries, I've raised a lot of money for United States real estate. I raised a little bit of money for real estate in Portugal. I personally think you have to find the right group of people who want to invest foreign because that is a very particular investor. It's not just, it's a little bit easier to raise money for people in the US. They can fly there, they can touch the building, you know, they can see it. It's, you know, it's in a state, it's in a union they're familiar with. But when you start asking people for funds in a foreign country that they've either never been to or maybe want to go to one day, it's a very different type of lender or investor in, in that, in my regard, in my experience. So, That makes a lot of sense. So to talk about the entrepreneurial spirit, like you said in Portugal, that it's just blown out by the government. Do you think that that's a competitive advantage for you or is that a net loss? When I first got here, you know, I came here just, you know, I was to say I'm a tourist, but (laughs) I came here just as, you know, hey, we're meeting up here and it's my, my family history is here. I had a little bit of that American, you know, I'm a proud American and I love the capitalism that's in the country. I came here with that in mind, like, oh, they could do this better and they can make that better and blah, 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 you know. But one thing you have to realize when you're investing internationally, you have to understand the culture. And here, the culture is not, is, it's not supported. That type of mentality, right, is not supported. And from the government standpoint, the government sets the rules. So if the government is not supportive of the entrepreneur, then if that's clearly identified, then don't try to force your way. Good luck. That's like, I don't even have an example for that, but that's just like digging a hole 
and trying to find gold in the ocean or something. I don't even know how to put an illustration to that because it's very, very difficult to change, you know, to the government as a foreigner. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, so yeah. what is the perception of foreign investors that are not U.S. based on U.S. opportunity right now? Well, I think the perception is pretty high. I think things are changing. And I think COVID, um, you know, the, the best part I like about COVID, um, it's sad what's going on. And I, I really, Certainly. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just, you know, this morning heard from a buddy of mine, four people and another family just wiped out. It's, you know, it's a really interesting time. And um, the flip side of that, I think what I've loved about this season in history is more people have gone remote or virtual than ever before. And that's a tough thing sometimes to get out of your comfort zone. So I think a lot of people have now looked into other markets and said, hey, I don't have to go into the office anymore, or my job is now allowing me to work from home. But do I want to work from this home? Or do I want to make a new home? And I think that is a great push in the right direction for what I believe in global travel, global citizenship, global. I'm a big believer in that. I have been for many years. I've always been frustrated personally with the ideas of having visas for different countries. And I know they're there for a reason, but I just see it as like, this is a, the world is a beautiful place. And I spend most of my life traveling it. I just believe more, I want more people to experience that. And I think with, with the benefit of COVID, what's happened is, it's given people more the uh, the reason, the opportunity to actually get out there and say, you know what? I don't want to live here anymore. I want to move to Ecuador. I want to move to Bali. I want to move to Thailand and just go and still have a, a job, you know, online. I think that's, I think that's been a very, that, that's my perception of what I think is happening already and what's the speed of it happening now. And I think that's going to impact real estate globally. I think you're right. And it's something that that I've certainly seen. So my first virtual deal was very similar to yours and that I wasn't really trying to go virtual, but you know, we had radio ads going on in Nashville, which is kind of my home base. And we had somebody that like kept saying yes to questions that they I thought would say no to, like, well, you know, it's worth 120. You know, I could buy it for 40. Is that okay? Oh yeah, that's fine. Well, would you finance it? Yeah, I'd, I'd finance it. Well, would you do that at 0%? Yeah, that's fine too. It's like, I ran out of reasons to not do the deal. And then <laughs> right. once I saw kind of the same thing, it's like, well, you know, you do this once and it's not that scary. It's not as scary as you thought. Then it sure. opens up this big opportunity. And so I have a good friend of mine, Aubrey, that he does a lot of international travel. And he's kind of said like, hey, if I retire, it's going to be in Southeast Asia, you know, and talked about how amazing it is in terms of how far your yeah. dollar goes and, so he does very, very well in real estate, but you know, just this kind of an international mentality. He's one of the first people that I've been, really been around that has that. And I wonder how it's going to impact things in terms of real estate with both of those kind of being coupled together. And it sounds like you're really a great example of what that could be like, where you know, we're not looking at even county by county or, or state by state. We're looking at things country by country. And what does that look like? So yeah. last question. Well, I guess I had two more questions that kind of came to mind. So number one, like... What do you have your eye on? So is there a region or a country that you kind of think, hey, that, that's looking interesting. Maybe it's premature, but I'm kind of interested in that. We'll start off there. That's a great question. So I'm on my last... I have a, a two-part phase of the project here, the senior care project that I mentioned earlier. And I'm on my second phase of that, which is probably going to be another year. I won't be here for the entire process. I'll be in and out. But once that is done, I am going to shift probably into a different market, myself personally. I too want to be in Southeast Asia. That's our next... As a family, we're all heading over to Southeast Asia. We got it all... I got it somewhat mapped out. I mean, I have a good friend who's been there before. 
And we want to really go into that market and uh, live there for quite some time. So I don't see myself personally like going deeper into this system here, this society, because of the the lack of entrepreneurialism, the lack of willingness to work with investors. So I don't like that. I don't like that part of the culture. It's beautiful here. Beaches everywhere. I mean, great weather. Completely, very, very safe. But it's just not very uh, conducive to business. So that's that. So when I look into the future, I have to say, Brad, your question is so timely because I want to get through the end of the year first before we make any final decisions. But I know we have our sights on Malaysia and Singapore, Bali, Indonesia, and, and we just want to we want to explore that side of the world. And at the core in my heart, I really love Europe. We just spent a whole, I think it was like three three weeks in Germany. And I've never driven through Germany. I've been to Hamburg multiple times and, and Frankfurt. And I've been to multiple parts of Germany as a tourist. But literally, we, we got in a car and we just drove around. And I couldn't believe what I saw outside of just flying in and staying in the local tourist areas. So we spent a good amount of time there, went to a theme park, and I was just amazed at how green the country is. And I want to get more deeper into Europe as well. Doesn't mean I want to invest in all those other countries, but I definitely want to go a little deeper and travel into those countries. I really love Europe. The history and the culture is just so amazing. Very cool. So my last question is really about decision-making. So when you're analyzing risk, are you looking at it from a cerebral, like thinking about the risk and analyzing risks with your mind and your head? Or do you take it as a gut feel and really make decisions with your heart? I am a very right-brained, gut-feeling kind of guy. And I have a good team member on my team who does, who's the left brain and gives me the numbers. And um, there are times where I have to you know, look at those numbers and say, okay, well, this is what they are. But I am definitely led you know, by the gut feeling, which has its moments of you can get burned that way. I feel like that was this recent decision here. Mistakes were made because of a gut feeling. But, you know, that's that's how I operate. I, I can't change my... You know, you can't change someone's DNA, right? So the way I operate is more of a gut feeling. And I, I look at trends. I feel like I have enough experience where I can say, okay, this is coming down the pike. This is what's happening. This is the next wave. How am I going to operate and uh, be an investor in this wave that's coming? In summary, I would say those two waves that are coming and they're here now and they're coming is senior care, short-term rentals. All right, I'll add one more, apartments. But I I see the short-term rental market exploding because of what we just talked about. COVID is, you know, there's going to be a mass of people testing, relocating and trying new areas because they have the ability to now more than ever. So I see that really, you know, taking off for a long time. Very cool. Very cool. Nathan, man, I appreciate this so much. It was so much fun to get together and talk about this. For those that are interested in you and more about what you do, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, sure. Basically, I do have a podcast myself, but basically right on my website, it's fearless-millionaire.com. I've been helping people over 10 years, helping them like, you know, how do I get started in this real estate business? How do I, you know, make my first offer? How do I you know, get my first deal. Me and my team, we have a, you know, a very like oil refined system where we get people into our training and then we help them to scale up to 25 deals. We make sure we just have this benchmark of you work with us until you get to 25 deals. If someone is interested in that, they can check us out there. But that is, uh, that's something that's near and dear to my heart. It's my way of giving back to the community. Very cool. Very cool. Guys, we'll throw that in the show notes for anybody that wants to reach out to Nathan. Enjoyed it, man. We'll catch you next time. Yeah, man. So great. Thanks.